Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Good morning. It's a joy to be here this morning. Um, as Jason said, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 3. 12 through 4, 7. He read you 4, 1 through 7. We'll get to the first portion in a minute. Uh, I'd like to begin this morning with a couple questions. I'm organizational by nature, which means I have a terrible memory. Uh, If I don't have a system for it, it's not where I left it. It's on the moon. So that's me. Um, And I like questions, open-ended questions. Not a lot of people like those, but I enjoy them. What do you think that people in the Lord have seen come out of you recently? And I'll let you define recently. One month, 18 months. What have people seen and the Lord seen come out of you recently? If I could interview the Lord and your neighbor, what words would they use to describe you? More specifically, your walk with the Lord especially during these last two years of pretty much absolute weirdness that we've been facing. Would they say that you're being, period, like Jesus? Two sentences. Would they say that you haven't lost heart? Would they say that you've been bold for Jesus? Would they label you one of God's magnificent ministers of mercy? And here's the thing, well, actually a couple things that I'd like to encourage you all with from this passage in 1 Corinthians this morning. If you know Jesus by faith, if you have been reconciled to God by the prompting of the Holy Spirit to cry out to him to save you and to reign over your life, your entire being and life, if you've cried out as needing the life of Christ for you, the death of Christ for you, the resurrection of Christ for you, the ascension of Christ and the current intercessory ministry at the right hand of the Father as he awaits the signal to return and make all things right, if you have confessed your need of all of those things, you can, you are like Jesus. And you can be free. And you can be a person who doesn't lose heart. And you can be bold, so bold as this passage will say, to set yourself in a position of being strikingly seen by all and the Lord. And you can do it even in the weirdest of seasons, like the one we're in now. If we turn to him for the power to do those things and nowhere else. He alone has to be our inspiration, motivation, and power to do those things. And it's important to note here that God's word never, ever, ever tells us we can do something, to do something, without giving us God himself as the power, the example, and the courage to do them. He doesn't just say, go do this thing, and sits back with no instruction or no example. He says, go do these things in my name. And he's like, oh, by the way, here I am as a gift to you to show you how to do those things. It's the big idea here this morning that I want us to kind of enjoy and talk about, that God's gospel makes you and I magnificent ministers of mercy. It's very pastoral because there's a lot of M's, and it's easy to remember. 
Um, and that's a thrilling thing to consider that we can be made a minister of mercy by God's gospel. And when we are made these ministers of mercy, this passage is going to unpack two things that happen. There are a lot of things, but this passage unpacks two. First, that Christ's reality changes us, verses 3, 12 through 18. And secondly, Christ's reality gives us a ministry to do. Because we're changed, then we're freed and given an example to do things for the glory of God. He gives us ministry. That's 4, 1 through 7. And this passage is structured in a neat and clean way. And as he's already, Jason shared, I kind of like neat and clean. And each section has a statement of reality. It begins with in verse 3, 12, and 4, 1. If you'll look at those verses, there's this statement that, that, that comes at us. Verse 12 of chapter 3 says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And then go down to verse four, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He's going to say that statement and unpack it from 12 to 18. Then he's going to say that statement in 4.1 and unpack it to verse 7. And so let me read this first section. I want to read chapter 3, verses 12 to 18, and listen to him unpack. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Point one, Christ's reality changes us from this section. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Some explanation here to help. The hope that Paul is referring to, because we're kind of parachuting into a letter, is, is specific. Yes, he's referring to the overarching hope in Christ, our moving from being dead in our sins to being alive to God in Christ toward righteousness. But he is more specifically in 3, 12 to 18, unpacking how when we confess Christ, one of the things we are granted is free, full, open, unchanging, eternal access to the throne room of God. And on the heels of that, he says that the result of that full, open, unchanging, eternal access to the throne room is this continual and progressive process of being made more glorious as we become more like Jesus by just simply looking at Jesus for glory and example in nowhere else. And to help make this point, he uses the example of Moses and the children of Israel, but he does it in a negative way. And so you're reading and it's this hard left turn. Like the, He says, we have such a hope, verse 12, and we are very bold, but not like Moses. And so it's kind of this hard left turn. So it's going to be a negative example in some ways, but there are things to learn from it. And some context here to help us understand that. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, with Moses leading them, pillar of fire and smoke, and Moses would go into the tabernacle. They would set up this tabernacle, and, and Moses would go meet God. And he would go into the tabernacle, and he would talk to God. 
And God would tell Moses what to say with people. He'd, to the people, he would say, I'm going to say this to you, and I want you to go out and tell the people my words. He was their, their mediator, their intercessor in between them and God. And he would go in and he would talk to God, and God would tell him what to say. And then when Moses would interact with God face to face, his, his face would literally glow because of being in the presence of the glory of God. Which is an interesting thought. And, and, and you've, on this side of the cross and the ascension and resurrection, you, you've met people like that. They're just kind of like glow because you, you're just, it's a figurative statement. But he didn't figuratively glow. Like he was a nightlight. Like he came out and his face was glowing and people could see it. It would have been fascinating to see. And so he would come out of the tabernacle then with his face uncovered and God's glory shining, and he would share the word of the Lord with people and had great power, and they would hear, and they would know that he'd been with God because his face is glowing and he's sharing this. But as this text tells us in verse 13, the radiance of God's glory would fade, and he didn't want the people to see the outcome of what was being brought to an end. That's what that means. He, he recognized that this glory was going to fade, and so his solution was, I'm going to cover my face. I'm going to wear a veil so that people don't see this glory fade. And so he had this routine. He would go in and talk. To, he would uncover his face and go in and talk to the Lord. His face would glow. He'd come out and share the words of, of the Lord with people. And then he would cover his face, and the people would never really see him without his face shining. And I want to cut Moses some slack here because he was, he was trying really hard. And it's commendable. I don't think his motive was poor. He wanted the people to see God as glorious and full of might and as their only hope of deliverance. But their minds were hard. They didn't want to hear the truth. And it seems that he thought, hey, if I cover my face and all they see is the glory of God from me, then maybe they'll believe and they won't be so stiff-necked and stubborn and upset God so much because he did a lot of bartering with God over over the children in their, in their stubbornness. And I think it wore on Moses. And it makes a lot of sense to us now, this passage of Paul saying, we have a hope and we're bold, but not like Moses who knew the glory came and went. Because see, we oper- he was operating under the old covenant. And Paul, when he's writing this letter to Corinth, is writing under the new covenant. The old covenant revolved around law. Think promises made. In the new covenant, think cross, resurrection, ascension, and forward, the fulfillment of those promises. Promises made and promises fulfilled in Christ. And we operate under that new covenant. He was operating under law, and we operate under grace. And so we can read this and feel differently, but I understand, I can kind of enter into how hard that would have been for Moses to live in that world and look forward with so much faith. And they did. Hebrews 11 tells us that. And Paul is using this example here to say, look, when you come to Christ and you do so in, in faith in him and his life and his work, you have access that does not come and go. You have glory that does not need to fade. You have a veil in your mind lifted that allows you to see things and the world and yourself differently, with different eyes. Not through a lens of law and death, but through a life of faith and hope. Hope that doesn't waver or lose heart. 
hope in Christ that brings life and brings hope. And you get to experience that clarity of vision. We, in Christ, get to experience that re-clarifying of our vision over and over and over as we simply gaze at Jesus to become more like Jesus. And our access to God through the eternal once and for all work of Christ is better than the access that the children of Israel had through the work of the man Moses, because that glory came and went. Moses couldn't lift the veil over their hearts. He tried. He did everything he could to make God more glorious. He wanted them to see. He couldn't manipulate circumstances enough by covering and uncovering his face. And Paul jumps on that and says, not like that, not like that, but like this now. Because as verse 14 says, there are hard verses in Scripture to read. Verse 14 says that only through Christ is the veil lifted. What that means is that if Christ is the word become flesh, the truth become flesh, we know that to be true because Scripture tells us that. That means if something is going to be true to a person, only Christ can reveal that to the person, not me, not you, not our persuasion. It is Christ alone. And that is simultaneously freeing and terrifying to consider. And as verse 18 says, this referring to being, being made more like Jesus, it comes from the Lord who is, in, who is spirit. You see, they then were under the law, and we now are under grace. And Paul is calling us as Christians to know and see and experience and live out that reality, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, the Scriptures say. To live freely and with hope under grace. And I find great encouragement in this passage to just spend, simply just spend more time staring at and studying my Savior just simply because I can be more like Him and to know Him more and to no other end. Not to be right in an argument, not to really have a clever turn of phrase to post somewhere, not just no other end than just to simply bask in the goodness of being known completely and enjoying Him for who He is and no other end than that. And that's what this is saying. And that's where our hope comes from when we enjoy knowing him just to know him and then we can be bold for him not just bold but really bold very bold it says and very means really here a lot and i'm encouraged greatly here and that it is possible through christ alone in whom there is now no condemnation to have a hope that results in being bold for christ because the veil has been lifted and i can now see god for who he is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to enjoy this deep complexity of a triune God that work in tandem and are one and the same of essence and on and on and on, but we just get to enjoy that. We can see him for who he is. And I can see myself for who I am and my weaknesses and not be crushed under my inability to change maybe the things I want to change about me. But my hope is in Jesus. It is not in my performance. I don't give up. I don't quit. But I don't despair. I don't lose hope. And I can see my neighbor in the world for who they are too. As people that Christ wants to, them to, that he wants them to know him. 
He wants us to be ministers of mercy toward those who don't know. And the Spirit of the Lord, with the Spirit of the Lord working within me, with, with Him working within you, we are free to love the Lord with all we have and our neighbor really, really well. And we can be freely bold for Jesus because He alone is our hope. We just get to focus on Him more and let His love flow through us to other people, everyone we come in contact with, not just Sunday, not just whatever moment you pick, but all the time. You can be the same person all the time, everywhere in Christ. And that is freeing. You don't have to be somewhere when you're not in different locations. We fight that. And I want more of that. And I want you to have more of that. And we can have that when we turn our gaze from our circumstances or the current state of affairs in our country or our county, or our home, or our own souls. And we can gaze fully toward the glory of God, toward Jesus. Our life, our hope, and as Hebrews 6 says, our anchor for the soul. And I don't know about you, but the last two years have taught me that I need a pretty good anchor for my soul. The things I've heard come out of my own mouth through the stress and turmoil of whatever it is and fill in the blank, And praise God, the anchor holds in Christ. But I feel like Moses a lot sometimes, and I I have to confess to you that I act like him a lot too. And so if you know me well and you hear me preach, you're like, well, that's nice of you to say that, but I know you. Yeah, we struggle. So I don't preach from a rival. I preach from a pleading and just saying, I want this to be true for more true for me as well. But I think I fall personally to two temptations when it comes to this the concept that Paul is getting to here. I think I fall to two things. I feel responsible for things that are the Lord's alone to be responsible for, and then I want to pick those up and make them happen. That's first temptation. And secondly, I want my sanctification, this idea of becoming more like Jesus, I want my sanctification and other people's sanctification to either be complete or at a faster rate than it is going, because at the end of the day, I just kind of want them out of my life or this out of my way so that I can get onto the glory that I want, and it's not about my glory. It's about his glory. How about you? Do you ever feel responsible for other people's salvation? Their ability to see the Lord for who he is and themselves for who they are? If you have kids, you do. I mean, we do have influence. And we even have a responsibility as Christians to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That's a command. But at the end of the day, we can't lift the veil. We can't make them believe. We can force fruit. But it won't last and it won't be from the root system that you want it from. But we can point them to the one who can lift the veil. And that's what we do. That's the nurture and the admonition of the Lord that we're raising them in. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. I mean, parenting comes down to that. If you can just talk your children into but see we can't see even that phrase is wrong we can't talk people into anything we plead with the gospel we appeal with the truth we don't demand anything because demanding is law and the end of the law is death and that's difficult in parenting because you gotta have rules like where's the line and you get to navigate all that muddiness and so it just puts you on your face before the lord and you get to be that honest with your kids but isn't it 
hard to walk through, but the easiest part of parenting is pointing your children to Jesus over and over and over through confession, through repentance, through all of it. Feeling responsible for other people's salvation. I mean, if you have friends, you feel that. Relationships. I mean, we do have influence and the responsibility to let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and they glorify our our Father, which is in heaven. I mean, yes, that is a very real thing, and that's a responsibility, but we can't lift the veil. You can't post the right posts, do the right thing, say the right thing to finally be the one to go, ha, I did it. I sealed the deal on that guy. You didn't do that. You can't do that. You can't coerce people into the gospel, but we plead and we appeal and we point them to Jesus, the one who can lift the veil, because this text says it is only through Christ that that veil is lifted, and there's great hope in letting go of that. That responsibility that we feel, that angst within us. You ever want your spiritual growth chart to have a steeper curve? I like charts. Steeper the curve, usually more of something is happening. Stock market should be this and not this. More is good in that situation. Anxiety, we want that down here. But you ever want it to be steeper? You want that curve higher? So much so that you can't enjoy the place of mercy or grace that you find yourself in because you're too busy longing for the next phase. If I can just get there and out of this season, whoo, vacation. Man, I do. When our kids were younger, like 10 and 8, an older man and I were talking about life. He was probably near my age, so I don't know what I am now. Uh, Older is different. It moves. That's a moving target. Um, His kids were uh, the age of our kids now in their low 20s, and and he he stopped me in, in conversation. We were talking about sports and life and everything that was going on in parenting, and he offered some wisdom that I think we can take from that and apply it here. And he said, make sure that you just enjoy each season of parenting. Don't worry so much about the next phase that you can't enjoy the one you're in. Now, not much lodges in this hamster wheel of my brain, but that kind of got stuck and, and, and lodged in there for a while, and it's been spinning, and we, we, we committed to that. Shared it with Becky, and I'm like, I, just, I really want to do that. I want to try to enjoy, because every phase, you're just like, everyone's around you going, this, wait until the teenage years, or wait until this, or, you know, there's all these phrases, and you're like, and we're like, no, like, Scripture says we can enjoy and have joy in every season, and so how do we do that? And so we really worked hard at applying that one thing through parenting, and our parenting is like a third of the way. I think they're 20, so 60. Like I'll probably be gone, so I think I'm a third of the way done parenting right now. Because um, it's never over, and that's good. You know, what we found out that God gives grace to help in every season, every time. He's always faithful. And what I learned, I'm wired cynically. I'm a problem solver, which means I'm the guy in the room going, that's probably going to go south. I should think ahead. Incredibly helpful if you're administrative, but really not fun to be around. And it was good for me to just say, like, what's the Lord doing here? It's a lot more fun for your soul to look at what the Lord is doing than to watch for what might go wrong. 
And you can do that when the kids are this big and tearing up the house and handing you pieces of drywall and all the things that they do. Like, there's grace there. And the Lord is doing something, working patience in you and self-control in them. Maybe we could apply that to our sanctification. Instead of feeling so much pressure to look into the future so that we can be prepared or whatever might come. Like, if I don't see this coming, trouble. I'm going to be the, the, the whistleblower for all of it. Like, instead of all that pressure to look forward and figure out and research 800 articles online of think about this, think about this, think about this in advance of it happening, what if, under the directive of 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 18, we just said, wow, the Lord has been so faithful and made us more like him here and here and here. Wow, Lord, you've been good to us. Maybe, maybe I need to be looking for his mercy in the moment more than I am being anxious about things I'm not responsible for. You know, looking for things to glory about rather than things to worry about. That's my problem. I wrestle with that. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, this text says. So Christ is changing us and making us more like him. And we can enjoy him by knowing him and being more glorious to our neighbor and right back to God. All the law, right there. Christ's reality changes us. That's point one, and it leads us to point two. Christ's reality gives us ministry, verses four, one through seven. First, the statement. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Some context here. The therefore here is saying that in light of the reality that Christ, that it is Christ alone that can make people believe the gospel and that his children are being transformed to look more like him, in light of that reality, therefore, there is ministry to do. And there is ministry that can be done with great courage. You can minister to people and not lose heart. Now, before, before we get there, what is the ministry that Paul is talking about here? There is ministry to do, and we don't want to lose heart. What kind of ministry did Christ and the fulfillment, the new covenant kind of usher in? Don't think old covenant. Don't think law. Let's think grace. And so what's that mercy look like? It's the type of ministry that Jesus' ministry ushered in. So if we look to Jesus, that's what he just told us to do. Look to Jesus. And so if we look to Jesus for his ministry, what did we hear from Jesus? Think Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Ministry that is fueled by being poor in spirit. Ministry that is fueled when you are mourning. Ministry that is fueled when you are meek. When you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Ministry that is merciful, that is motivated and flows from pureness of heart. Ministry that is motivated and seeks after peacemaking. Ministry that while you see persecution doesn't make you lose heart, but makes you sing praises. And we hear of that, martyrs in prison, singing praises, knowing their life is nearing an end, and they're just ministers of mercy to everyone else in the prison around them because their hope has not wavered. That kind of, you know, when you're reviled, reviled means to be critically insulted unfairly. And so if you get critically insulted unfairly you don't revile in return because Christ was reviled and did not return. We know that. That's the kind of ministry 
that you do that doesn't lose heart. That's where it must flow from, a desire for those things. Think fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know, all those things that Scripture says are never illegal in any context, ever. Against such things, there is no law. They're never out of season. And so by the power of Christ, we can minister like that to people who have a veil over their eyes that only Christ can lift and not lose heart because we can at face value stare at this and go, what's the point of ministry? If only Christ can lift the veil, what are we doing? We're looking to Jesus and we share him. How will they, how will they hear unless we tell them? Scriptures say that too. So we tell them and we don't lose heart. And we don't take credit for fruit, and we just share him. How do we minister like that and not lose heart? It's kind of hidden in the wording of verse 4.1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. If you dig into that, and I'm well out of my pay grade, and I trust commentators, and so I did. And the way all that links together in, in the languages and the tenses of verbs and so forth, it's basically saying, as we receive mercy from God, we are able to give mercy from God. We're ministering out of the overflow. It's not made up. To boil that down in really simple terms, it just simply means, act your age. It's okay. You don't have to be 20 years forward in your walk when you first come to Jesus. You share what you know out of the overflow of your study, and you just grow and grow and grow, and there's this sanctifying effect of studying and washing yourself by the water of the Word, and you just get in there and study, and you become more like Jesus, and you just share what you know along the way, and the next thing you know, you're just more mature than you were before, but you just don't leave that pay grade. He says, leave the growth to God, and as you grow, minister at that level. It's a sarcastic phrase. I speak fluent sarcasm um, and that I like to use is that, you know, when a child acts up, mine are 22 and 20 now, so when a six-year-old's losing their mind and the parent's like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, yeah, I hate it when they act their age. It's so hard. And it, but it's, it's normal. They're just acting their age. You can apply that to your spiritual life and not panic. It's okay. Be content in Christ. Our work to do is to stare at and study and point others to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's the work that we do. And it is hard work in your soul. So it's not like sit back. It's you have to work that within you. Like you're, that, that's why quiet time, devotions, your personal walk matters. Because if there's no overflow, there's no ministry. That's what this is saying. And so as you grow in Christ, share what you know in Christ. And there's a warning here. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and the sight of God. That commending ourselves is the put yourself on display, striking display, easily seen. What this is saying is that if you get out of your pay grade, you're going to get tempted to tamper with the word to make yourself sound smart to pull a Moses in the whole veil thing. Kind of monkey with things that aren't ours to monkey with, to take responsibility for things that aren't our responsibility. People know when you're selling them. 
To put it really simply, we receive mercy from the Lord, and from that overflow, we teach the word as it is written, and we, do, and we need to do that with the right expectations and the right end in view. I would argue that if you want to be able to minister and not lose heart, you'll need to work hard at keeping your faith simple, easy to understand. The gospel is not complicated. I think that Paul would agree here when he states in verse 5 that what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Like 85 sermons in Jesus Christ as Lord alone. Massively deep, but so simple. A simple gospel. I would argue that if you want to be able to minister and not lose heart, you'll need to work hard at constantly remembering who it is you're up against, Satan, and who it is you'll need fueling your efforts. I think Paul would agree when he says that it is Satan that has veiled the minds of some here in these verses, to the point of them being among the perishing. Really hard truth to read. And it's Christ alone that can lift the veil. The battle's not ours. I would argue that if you want to minister to people and not lose heart, you'll need to work hard at keeping yourself in the servant role and not the master one. And that the right one, capital O, gets the glory for your efforts. You'll need to work hard at being one who is reflexively willing to lay down your life instead of lording it over other people. You know, like Christ at Calvary. Just laid down his life. I think Paul would agree when he states that what we proclaim is Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. Think slave. Servant's been polished up a little bit there. I would argue that if you want to minister to people and not lose heart, you'll need to work hard at keeping a correct perspective of yourself and a correct perspective of just who it is that is doing all these things that we work really hard to do. I think Paul would agree when he states here that we have this treasure, he says, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power, the gospel, belongs to God and not ourselves. Or when he says that, and I paraphrase, that the same God who spoke light into existence from nothing at creation has shown light into our hearts to reveal his Son to us. If we believe that God spoke everything we see into existence in a moment by the spoken word, what's, why do we then not believe that God can speak into someone's heart and light comes? Truth, the veil is lifted. And so what this text is really saying is that if you want to look at Jesus and you want to minister like Jesus, it means that you need to see yourself as a clay pot cracked, busted up, not all that cool looking, and out of the cracks comes the light of the gospel. From our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities and our brokenness comes the gospel, not by might, not by strength, but by brokenness. And so humility is key. And the battle's not ours. And if it's not our battle, then our job is to remain humble and to submit ourselves to the king whose battle it is. And if you're going to go there, you you need a really simple gospel in those moments. 
Because the warning that's here that God makes from cover to cover in his scriptures is that God will not share his glory with another. And so we don't take credit. We can't take credit. Simultaneously thrilling and terrifying at the same moment. I would also argue that all these things and more are possible by the power of God. And I would argue that I'm looking right now at living proof of just that. It is so fun to come back here and preach because I, it's, hear, hear me out. It's going to sound like an insult. It's not. I have to explain this on the front end. I love coming here and knowing less people because God is working. We've prayed a long time for this. And I love looking into eyes of people that I don't know and preaching the gospel because God is still working. He's faithful and he is doing work. And this is just one zip code in one county, in one state, in one country on a giant planet. And he's doing that everywhere. You are living proof of God's gospel being worth laying your life down for. Because you were once dead in your sins, and now you are alive to God. You were once far off, but you are now near. You were once an enemy of God, but you are now his friend. You were once alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds. And you are now reconciled to God and able to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God. And you are there now. That's a reality for you in Jesus. That is not, whew, someday I got to worry about it. No, it's like now. That is grace for today. God's gospel has made us magnificent ministers of mercy. And if we just take those last few paraphrased verses I just quoted and minister from them, there is plenty there. And there's a lot of folks that need to hear it still. And conversely, if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, have you asked him to lift the veil? Or are you just doing the church thing and hoping that it'll click one day? No, he needs you to cry out to him and say, I want to know you, but I can't see you. That's the reality. So show me your glory. And the scriptures say that the, God, that the Lord is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So it is a matter of you just simply crying out. So have you asked him to lift the veil, to show you his beauty, his son? You don't need to do anything but that. Ask him to be real to you, to invade your life in a really good way, to mold you into the glorious shape of him. He wants more ministers of mercy. He wants you to be like Jesus. He wants you to turn toward him like all of us are still doing that know him. The Christian life isn't a single turn. Got my fire insurance. It is a lifelong turn. The first turning when the veil of your mind is initially lifted, that's called justification. And then the rest of your walk with the Lord is one of turning more and more toward the Lord and you become more like him. That's called sanctification. The biggest kickback I hear from people who don't want to cry out to the Lord is that they see so many Christians acting so wrongly. I can't refute that reality. It drives me nuts too, especially when it's me. It stinks. But here's the thing. We're not yet glorified. 
See, there's justification, sanctification, glorification, being made perfect. And we're not perfect. And so if you're not perfect, you're in good company. Join us. It'll, it'll be a great ride. But the reality is, don't put that on us. And Christian, if you know Jesus, stop putting that on your brothers and sisters. Stop posting and yelling and thinking that, man, you got to be. It's like, we're not perfect. Stop putting that burden on me. If you have knowledge that you want me to share, like, oh, let's be edified and built up. Instead of like, you can't, I can't believe you didn't know that. You're all wrong. This arguing is like, what if we just were loving and we look for grace in the moment? Because there was only one perfect man who lived, and his name was Jesus. And even though a person knows him and has the Holy Spirit within themselves to point them to being like Jesus, we haven't arrived. That happens when Christ returns again to make all things new. And I think I need the reminder from this passage of that reality that we aren't perfect and that we don't need to have all of tomorrow's answers today. It's going to be okay. That we can actually simply live each day looking at Jesus and ministering to each other out of that overflow. We can simply be like Jesus. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for your gospel that you gave us. Your perfection that you give us. Your ministry that you give us. Your forgiveness that you give us. Your mercy that you give us. Your grace that you give us. Your power that you give us. Your hope that you give us. Lord, fuel us with your spirit to be and to live and move and have our very being like your son, our Savior. It is in his name we pray. Amen.